And good morning to you. We are delighted that you have decided to once again tune in. And as we begin to think about Scripture, we would be amiss if we didn't share with you how blessed we are. With your comments, whether those be online or through email, you can send us comments always at louc.org. And if you're ever in the Loma Linda area or you worship with us in person, both Joey and I would love to just connect with you and hear some comments and continue the conversation. We are just blessed that our time together is serving not only to deepen your relationship with God, I know it's a growth opportunity for us as well. Now, before we talk about Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, I'd like to invite you to pray and ask that the same God that inspired the writers of Scripture may inspire us today as we open His Word. Mm. Gracious God, we want to thank you just for you being you. And we thank you because we can see who you are being revealed to us through the pages of Deuteronomy, through the pages of the Old Testament, the pages of the New Testament, the witness of Scripture, we thank you because you continue to reveal our weaknesses and your strength in our everyday lives. And we pray, Lord, that you continue to be present in everything we do. So as we share, as we talk, as we meditate, as we think, we pray that you may come down and inhabit our conversations for we pray in your name. Amen. Listen to the words of the author of Deuteronomy as he develops this pericope. Uh, the people are poised to take over the land. Now, the promise of nationhood, peoplehood, liberty, freedom, the pursuit of happiness, perhaps. Those are all so close to them that they can almost touch them. They have dreams. Dreams as to what land their tribe will be allotted, what cities they will build, the granaries and the crops and the spaces for grazing. They have dreams of sons and daughters and descendants, lineages and families. They have dreams of the Messiah coming through one of those families. They have the idea of restoration and renewal. No longer outcasts. The whole of the world will come to Israel. They'll come to Israel to worship Israel's God. Sure, the Greeks will give the world philosophy and the Romans will give the world their legal systems. But these Jews, these Jews will gift all the people monotheism, Yahweh, the God who is so close that you can almost touch him. It is as they're poised to take over the land that God gives, him, gives them this command. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and now Israel, verse 12. What does the God, the Lord your God, ask of you? But to fear the Lord, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and to observe the law, the Lord's commands, to observe the decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens and the earth, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything that is in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now... Now the Lord has made you numerous as the stars in the skies. If ever there were a summary of every single tenet that comprises the Hebrew Bible, it would be found in these 10 verses that we just read. Those 10 verses not only contain God's desire for his people, his devotion to Israel, they also represent the people's response to this covenantal call that God is gifting them. Included in that response are clear and concise directions as to how one is to live life, both in the private and in the public realm. Furthermore, you have this idea of how liturgical praise, the work of the people, after all, that is what the word liturgy means, how that is to be had. You have the framework for a worship service. You have a narrative that is to be shared. You have a story used to evangelize. You have hope when life seems hopeless. Every single thing that Israel believes about God contained in 10 chapters, in 10 simple verses. The subtext in my Bible underlies this emotion, this emotion that Israel is called to experience as they relate to God. It begins with the word, fear the Lord. Now, throughout wisdom literature, the idea of fearing God is interwoven with the concept of knowledge. Fear of God, after all, says the wise man, is the beginning of all wisdom. But Israel isn't called to quake and quiver. The covenantal response that Israel is to have towards Yahweh isn't one of sheer terror. 
like the modern writer Rudolf Otto notes, the experience that Israel is called to inhabit is a liminal space, one that exists between sheer terror and fascination. And where does the terror come from? Come from? Well, I think it emanates from the recognition that the people have that they are not God. It's a perilous affirmation to make. For to say that you are not God is to admit that you are not in complete and total control. After all, the covenantal relationship that God is asking Israel to embrace is one of dependence. I will be your God, you will be my people. Circumcise your hearts, defend the cause of the poor and the widow as I do. This prophetic notion of fearing God begins with the recognition that indeed we are not God. But you know what causes the fascination, that other emotion, that auto talks in this liminal space that you and I have been called to inhabit? It is that this God that is wholly other, this God that is different, this God that seems to be removed from us, this God knows us. This God asks us for everything. God isn't jealous because he is insecure. God is jealous because he knows us. And so Israel poised to enter Canaan as they are. Receive this summary. And it's a summary that they go back to. Has there ever been something in your life that you go back to? Something that you see? A voice that you hear? A pearl of wisdom that was shared with you? A memory? A relationship? Something that you continue going back to because it provides you comfort? Something that sets up your values, something that parses out the contours for your existence, the margins for your life, what is it that you continue going back to? If you ask the prophets from Amos to Isaiah, they would have gone back to verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Does that sound like Isaiah's God? Perhaps like Jeremiah or Ezekiel's vision of the divine. In pomp and majesty, God elevates himself above any other deity. Or what about the God that Amos continues to follow, the one that defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow? As Amos invites Israel to stop and resist the temptation to share a view of life that is abusive, where human beings are commodities. 
and where we monetize relationships. And Amos says, God is one that will cry out against Samaria that sells the poor for a pair of sandals. If you ask the exile community, fearful as they were, perhaps they would have gone back. They would have gone back to verse 22 in the promise. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, but the Lord your God has made you numerous. And you can find that, right? Buried into the writings of the post-exilic community, this notion of the root, the stump of the line of Jesse. Well, today I don't want to focus on the God of Amos or Isaiah, the majestic deity that populates the pages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the hope-eliciting God that was so present and palpable for the exiled community. Today, I want to focus on the first piece of our passage. It should sound familiar to you. Israel, what does the God, the Lord your God ask for of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience, to love him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. If that particular reading sounds familiar to you, perhaps it's because it is almost verbatim what the prophet Micah uses as he writes. Perhaps a little context, maybe we can paint a mental image of the world that Micah is living in. At the threat of the time are the Assyrians. Micah has seen raid after raid descend upon the northern kingdom. He has seen the Assyrian war machine and he worries. He worries because that war machine has begun to encroach the southern kingdom. He has seen the spillover of the Sumerians as they take that great Jewish fortress of Lachish. Micah knows about war. Micah knows about violence. And so the response that Micah wants to craft is one where removed from the experience, that hope-filled experience, of those Israelites preparing to possess the land, Micah wants to see if covenant still holds true. He begins by evoking images that are frightful. Though mountains in Micah's narrative will shake, and the language that he uses is bellicose, in essence, Micah is setting up this confrontation between the people of God and Yahweh. The idea that is ingrained in the Hebrew is of a conquering army coming. And there's soldiers numbering so many that the very ground shakes as they march. Israel, Israel's in trouble. And Jerusalem might fall. 
And they're in trouble and they might fall because at least in Micah's theology, they have forgotten that the covenant that God wanted to establish with them in Deuteronomy still holds true. That time doesn't alter God's commitment to us. That time doesn't alter our response to God. Often, we approach religious life and our faith experiences believing that as life becomes exceedingly more complicated, somehow our responsibilities towards that God cease or change. We believe that amongst and amidst the many competing things that we owe allegiance to, God clamors for attention as just another thing that we must, well, another thing that we must interact with. Micah tries to remind Jews in times of crisis of that experience right before they possess the land. Israel has fallen and failed covenant. And so the question comes, the question comes, what does God desire? How do we restore and reestablish the relationship? And Micah decides to go back. What, what shall I come with before the Lord? And how shall I bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come down before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? And shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? So as Israel is attempting to answer the question, how is covenant restored? Micah engages in hyperbole. He begins to say, maybe, maybe the rituals and the rites that we established after we came into the land, maybe those will save us. Without realizing that before there was church, before there was temple, before there was nation, before there were any of those constructs that are so seminal to faith, God was. You know, God, God's commitment to Israel predates the existence of Israel. But institutional as we are, we want to go back to rights that can be managed. And so Micah, that man that knows about war, the troubled poet, the man from Morisheth, engages in hyperboles. First, calves. Year-old calves. But if that won't do, maybe thousands of rams. And if that doesn't do... How about we fill and flood Jerusalem and Samaria in rivers of oil? And if that won't do, how about we borrow the highest form of religious expression that the lands around us have? We will offer our own flesh and blood on the altar. Because institutional religion wants to renew covenant. Because institutional faith wants to recuperate and recover vision. 
Maybe we need to take a vote. Maybe another session. Maybe a board meeting. Let's institutionalize faith, shall we? Because in Micah's mind, it is easier to offer 10,000 rams and to flood Jerusalem with oil than it is to circumcise our hearts. So what does God need? And what, is, what are the words that echo in Micah's mind? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But that you act justly, and that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly. This holy trinity of action where justice is always meted out with mercy. And where those of us who have received mercy receive it in humility is all that God desires. How hard it is. How hard it is to recognize that the covenant isn't a call to institutionalism and to religious praxis to rite or to ritual, how hard it is to recognize that the call that echoes from Deuteronomy and all through Scripture is one, well, it's one that seeks to move us away from the comfort of a covenant we can control to a life lived in response to a God who keeps his end of the bargain even before we were. So what words, what words spring to your mind what phrases echo in your heart when you reach the moment of crisis? Who is and what is the image of God that pops into your mind when life ceases to make sense? How do you respond to the questions of what does this God require from you? Simple, never simplistic, circumcise your heart. So Joey, we have this conversation um, of Deuteronomy popping up in wisdom literature, popping up in prophetic writings, popping up in Psalms. It, it just is kind of this, this book that whether it be because of Josiah's reform or any other reason, it kept popping up throughout Israel's faith life, and they kept reaching back to find something of value there. So what do you think? What do you think about this week's lesson? Wow. You know, honestly, I didn't realize how much of Deuteronomy was woven into the prophets until we started reading them side by side. You know, we, we, we had that study on Isaiah, and then 
we went into Deuteronomy and there's just so many echoes, like you pointed out, echoes of, of um, Deuteronomy found throughout the writings of the prophets. Reminds me of what um, John Pauline said in one of his books. He said that the Bible uses the language of the past, of its past, um, to describe what's happening in the present mm -hmm. and what will happen in the future. And so often um, they'll use the metaphors of, for example, the flood to describe the exodus and the exodus to describe the return from exile. And so there's this, this imagery um, that's woven throughout, throughout the prophets. That's, that's so powerful because these prophets are not just calling people forward to something, but like you said, they are calling people back to something that they knew, but they had, they had just lost sight of. So the question that kind of ran through my mind as we were studying this passage and as you were talking was, why is it so hard for us to stay, keep hold of, of those foundational things, right? Moses, he so clearly outlines in Deuteronomy what it is that they need to hold. Keep the commandments. He says, follow God's decrees, follow, be obedient to, to the covenant um, uh, commands and and you will prosper in this land. If you don't, things will fall apart. And it, what actually happened will happen. And I don't know, why is that so hard for us to do? So Max Weber talks about this. Uh, Max Weber, one of my favorite sociologists, talks about the life of institutions. And he says that when you're serious about something, mm -hmm. anything, you must institutionalize. Mm. The problem is that once you institutionalize, you become less serious about that something that you were really serious about in the first place. And that last part is my addendum to what to Weber's formula. It's true. Um, we have these people that are landless and God says, okay, here's what you need to do. And they go in and they start forming uh, their institutions. Mm. And then they form a kingdom mm. and then they form a temple and then the temple becomes institutionalized. And then by the time Micah and Amos appear on the scene, the services of the temple are what matters mm. without any consideration for the people that are at the temple, in the temple courts. Mm. And by the time Jesus comes around, that whole temple structure has solidified mm. in the minds of at least the elite in Jerusalem as a thing that really matters. Mm. And with the death and, resur and resurrection of Jesus, once again, there's this amorphous body, something new that occurs. And for 300 years, this amorphous thing grows. Mm. And then... Well, then Constantine becomes converted and you have the institution of a church mm. and then it takes about 1200 years, right? For that, for, for that institution to shift and move. Mm. And then you have indulgences and all this other paraphernalia yeah. that is attached to religion. Yeah. And then Luther comes around yeah. and again, you have this amorphous body. <sighs> And here we are, right? 500 years later, uh, institutionalized, 
and institutional. And so I think the tension there um, is that we need institutions because institutions are what we do when we care about something seriously. Um, But how do we manage when the purpose of the institution often is its survival? Mm. And that's that's the rub. I think that's the rub that that we've been dealing with since Deuteronomy was written. Um, it's it's this it's this tension between our mission, mm. the thing that we know we've been called for, and our survival. Mm the thing that we take seriously. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great point that we build institutions, we create institutions because we believe in something so strongly we want it to last. I mean, that's what happened with the Adventist church, right? The Adventist church began as a movement, um, like all of the other movements that you were talking about, and eventually we became institutionalized because we wanted it to last. We we resisted writing our, our beliefs Um, writing a statement of our beliefs until we felt like we had to in order to have some consistency. We resisted becoming an organization until we had to so that we could have a printing press and and develop this. And so we we eventually grabbed on to to the hold uh, of this idea of the institution, but eventually the institution itself becomes the point rather than the thing that the institution Mm -hmm. was built for. So is that inherent in institutions, because I, when I was reading this, I was thinking, maybe they just institutionalized the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. What if they just institutionalized the, the concept of caring for the widows and the orphans mm-hmm. and doing justice? And that's what they institutionalized. If they institutionalized that, would that have been more successful? Or is it just that the fact that once you become an institution, eventually it becomes all about the survival of the institution like you were, you were talking about? There are communities of faith built specifically on the idea of helping the poor. Mm. Um, Salvation Army. Feed the children. Mm -hmm. And while I want to be very clear that those institutions do a lot of good, uh, there's been a lot of work looking at how much of the actual money that goes into these institutions goes for the cause Mm. that the institution was created for versus for the overhead that is maintaining the institution. Mm. Um, Some are more successful than others, but there's not one where 100% of the resources and energy are dedicated to that which the institution was created for. It's impossible to do. Mm. And so I think... I think the issue isn't with institutions. Institutions need to exist. The issue is when institutions become hesitant to reformation Mm -hmm. and when institutions become hesitant to those prophetic echoes that arise from time to time. That's Mm -hmm. why Deuteronomy is so, so important throughout the Old Testament, right? You're getting these prophetic echoes from Deuteronomy throughout the Old Testament. And it's this call for the institution to reform, to return, 
and to shift. Mm. Some institutions do that better than others. Mm -hmm. um, no institution is perfect. It's what we have. So I think the question that we need to ask about, and you and I are part of an institution mm -hmm. that we love. So I think the question that we need to ask of our institution, both locally and globally, is how adept are we mm. at allowing for reformation? And how aligned are we with those prophetic voices that, um, that begin to emerge from time to time, even in our institution? Mm. So there's always going to be that tension of institutional survival versus the purpose for which the institution was created. And that tension is going to, at times, cause mission drift, mm -hmm. where we focus more too much on the survival of the institution. The institution has to survive in order to accomplish its mission. But when the focus becomes too much in this, this area, then mission drift happens. Mm -hmm. And then that's when you're talking about it's important to listen to the prophetic voices that are calling us back to that original purpose and saying, Hey, we need to relook at why why we're doing what we're doing because eventually because we're it seems like we're doing it for the wrong reasons now. Right? Yeah, yeah, and well, I don't know, Joey. How how willing do you think institutions are to adapt hmm. uh, and to adopt practices within within their DNA that push adaptability? Because that's how. By the way, the, the really funny thing, or the tragic thing, depending on what institution you, you belong to, is that institutional survival cannot occur unless these institutions have a high adaptability threshold, mm -hmm. right? So the more malleable you are as an institution over the long run, the better chances for your, for your survival. So I think we need to start gauging how much tolerance our institutions have, the institutions that we believe in, that we're serious about, that we care for, how able are they to become malleable and what is what is their adaptability threshold? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah, there's been a lot of books recently about this concept of adaptability and the importance of, of adaptability in organizations um, like anti-fragile mm -hmm. and... Stanley McChrystal's um, uh, team of teams, right? These, this concept that actually we, we've been building on this model that efficiency is the most important value for an organization's survival. But in reality, in this changing world that we're in, and none more changing than the past year and a yeah. half, right? Um, that the most important quality is not efficiency, but adaptability. The, the ability to change with the circumstances, adapt to the circumstances around us. He uses the example of coral, right, versus the pyramids in Giza, right? Um, the pyramids were were strong, but they're not resilient because they they if there's an earthquake, if there's something that happens that the original builders did not account for, eventually it will fall. But coral, as fragile as it seems, will break off, but it is able to grow back mm. because it's able to adapt to its circumstances. So the di difference between adaptability and strength, right? And um, that's a good question. How adaptable is our organization, is our um, institution? One thing I've loved, I mean, the pandemic did so many terrible things and caused so much pain. But one thing that it did force us to do, at least in our local institution of our church, Loma Linda University Church, 
is adapt. I remember that first week after we decided that we we were going to close out our in-person services, we got together in that big sanctuary so we could spread out. And then we started brainstorming. And it was exciting. I don't know how you felt about it, Miguel, but I felt a little bit excited because it felt like the possibilities were wide open. There was nothing, there were no um, fragments of, of the of the past that was just holding us and saying, oh, we have to do this because we always did this. We The future was wide open. We had to re-envision the future. And it it actually gave us a lot of freedom to do things and to do um, to, to minister in ways that we had longed to, but weren't always able to because there were things that we always had to do that was that were holding us. So um, sometimes I think, especially when the circumstances force us to, I've seen adaptability in our institution, um, but often it feels like some outside force needs to force us to adapt in order for us to adapt. I don't know. How do you, how do you see no, it? No, I think, I think that's, that's the point. Um, I mean, that's, I think, why Deuteronomy is very clear in pushing us to this idea of prophetic voices. Hmm. Uh, again, there, there are certain differences. Uh, Weber uh, notes that there's differences between a prophet and a priest, and Weber's looking at it from a Jewish perspective, but I think it's, it's, it's applicable to our conversation of, of institution. The priest is the ultimate institutional person. Mm. It is the priest's responsibility to make sure that the bills are paid and that the sacrifices are ongoing and that the temple is clean. Every so often, though, you need this disruptive external force, mm. and that is the prophet. The yeah. prophets come as disruptive external forces. And so I think, um, not that the pandemic was prophetic, but I think it shows us the need for external factors to mm. speak into our framework, mm. because that's the only way that we push towards adaptability, which I think we've we've agreed at least at this point is a good thing yeah. so it's if, if it's a pandemic if it's a new uh, way of looking at life if it's uh, our people and our particularly our young people growing up in a more interconnected world saying hey we need to re-look at these concepts or at these ideas. Mm -hmm. I think those are voices that could be prophetic and could force us then to challenge our structures and our systems mm -hmm. and to ask the question, how adaptable are we? Uh, the, best, uh, the best definition for adaptability that I've read uh, was given to Lawrence Gonzalez by a park ranger, one of the uh, rangers uh, rescue services at Yosemite. And it's simply adaptability is the capacity to take in environmental information and mm -hmm. to allow that environmental information, that environmental information to alter your mental models. Mm -hmm. And so we all have mental models that we go back to. Um, how able are we to allow mm -hmm. external information? Uh, you you want to uh, you were referring to a, a pandemic as disruptive. How able are we to take that information and allow it to affect our mental models? Mm, wow. So then, how how can we be more open to that? Like, <clears throat> I mean, we're not priests, but we sort of 
function as in the priestly role of actually I, I should correct that we are all priests right that was the we're Protestants. You, yes, <laughs> we're, yes. We're, we're, we're reformed. We're reformed. <laughs> we're all, we're all priests, but um, that uh, you know, in our function, we're sort of given the responsibility of making sure the institution continues to grow and continues to thrive. Right, that's part of the role that we're given in. Um, so, how can we then be more open to the prophetic voices? And then let me add, add an even second secondary question. Is it possible for a priest to also be a prophet? Or does it require that outsider's perspective in order to really be able to speak mm. in and see the mission drift mm. accurately? Yeah, I, I, think, I think when Israel was able to do this um, at its best was when Israel possessed a clear and concise idea of what the covenant was. Mm -hmm. So they had their their notions of covenant really clear. Mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of these small, small periods in time where you see uh, where you see the prophetic and the priestly office kind of work in tandem. And I would argue that when you when you don't have mission drift, when everything is going the way that it's supposed to go, when you're clear and concise about your covenantal obligations to God, mm. there is no need for prophets. Prophets right. don't emerge until there's mission drift. Mm. So the question I, I think the first question that you that you have to ask rather than dismiss the prophetic voices, mm -hmm. Are to ask the prophet, are to ask ourselves honestly in the spirit, in an inquisitive spirit, where is the mission drift mm. uh, before even we we begin to engage with the prophetic voices? Because if we're taking scripture and we're, if we're letting scripture echo through our conversation today, I can't think, and maybe maybe you can, Joey. I can't think of one single place in scripture where a prophet emerges and everything's going the way it's supposed to go. <laughs> That's true. Now, the second question, is it possible to have both? Yes. Samuel is, I think, a prime example of kind of this, this moment where, you, where these two things coalesce. Mm. But they coalesce in order to reform a system that needs deep reforming. So uh, under Eli's priesthood, the office of a pre of, of the priestly office had become shall we say less than reputable and yeah. so samuel is able to speak prophetically into that office in order to restore mm. the the luster of that office and you're right we're not priests but i i think we're living in a in a time in a season of earth's history when the pastoral office mm. has lost some of its luster. And mm. so we need some prophetic pastors to speak in mm. and to attempt to reform that idea oh. of vocation, to return it to what it was already, to what, what it was always called. We are all priests, but some of us have been called also to be shepherds. Mm. And so I think that in you know, a world that cares so much about visibility, about importance, about popularity, about influence. I think that the issue of a that the view and the vocation of a parish pastor as the shepherd 
has has lost some of its luster. Mm. And so I think we do need some prophetic pastors. I have a I have a friend from another denomination who lives in Winnemucca. Now, our friends don't know where Winnemucca is because I didn't know where Winnemucca is. Winnemucca is in Nevada. Mm. It's uh, if you're if it's close closeish to Reno, it's the city in the middle of nowhere, and mm. all that there's two churches in his town, and that's all there is. Mm. And so, his mission, and he's gotten calls to move to Las Vegas and to move to uh, the Bay Area, and uh, he's he's actually quite gifted at what he does. But when you ask him and you speak to him, he says, this is this is where I need to be because I need to restore the idea of vocation to the work. Mm. And so in that sense, he's being prophetic in his office. And so I I'd love for more of more of us pastors to be prophetic. I don't know. What do you think, Joey? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The prophetic pastor. You know, when you when I think about Samuel, though, he actually started as an outsider. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's interesting that God didn't call Eli or his sons. I mean, his sons were doing some terrible yeah. things. So I understand why God <laughs> didn't call them, but he didn't call an insider there. Uh, he did call an outsider, brought him and he became an insider, Correct. but he still somehow retained that outsider's perspective. I mean, do we need that for prophetic pastors? Should we be looking for pastors outside of the traditional realms to say maybe we need some voices that see things a little bit differently if we're if we're going to shake things up and if we're going to if we're going to regain that luster that you mm. talked about i mean is that is that what we need well the i think the first question that that we need to answer is do we need things to be shaken up mm. um we said before right uh we started this with the presupposition that prophets emerge when the situation isn't going well, yeah. right? That this reminder to live in, in the way that Micah and Deuteronomy are calling you to live occurs when there's pro when there's problems. So I think we need to be, we, and I'm talking to you, I'm talking to, to you, Joey, as my colleague, to our team here, to our Southern California, Southeastern California Conference, to our union, to our church at large, I think we need to to have a a spirit of that is that is asking the right questions, right? And and the first question I think that we need to answer is, do we need things shaken up? Mm. Uh, it's funny that Adventism believes that in the end that's what needs to happen, right? Our all our discourse mm. of the latter rain presupposes this shake. We even use the term right, the shaking. Yeah. Um, so that's I think the question: Is it time to shake things up? Mm. Um, and if our answer to that question is yes, then then I think we do need to start being intentional about looking at voices that are from the are from the outside, uh, voices from the margins. Um, yeah, prophetic voices. Yeah, I remember I just recently, a few weeks ago, I guess, or a month ago now, um, heard a, a report at the NED year in meetings about that about the ways that um, Adventism is perceived within the larger context within the North American division. And then also data about the aging of Adventism. Mm -hmm. And all of those things seem to show that, seem to su su suggest that there are some things we could be doing better, right? And I, I remember the saying, 
but your system is designed perfectly to get the results you're getting, mm -hmm. right? So if our system is designed perfectly to get the results of aging, the aging of Adventism, of the outside world having this, not not that we should we sh we should aim to have them um, love who we are, but that they inaccurately conceive of who we are, that their perspective of us is not what we actually want them to see about us. If that's actually what we are creating by who we by how we're operating, then maybe we do need to change something up in the system in order for us to be who we who God has called us to be. Because it seems like right now we're not really hitting that mission, especially to the younger generations. Mm -hmm. And um maybe even to the larger um North American division territory at large. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And Joey, I think that's why Mike invites us to to do justice with by loving mercy. Because I think any shaking, even if it's minor, um, is going to require a pot of mercy. Mm. Um, and it's going to require those of us who are in positions of leadership to walk humbly. Mm. And so if if we're looking, and I I know you, you, you've shared uh, some of your experiences at uh, our North American Division meetings, if what we're seeing is the aging of Adventism, and if you and I are viewed as "quote unquote" young pastors, my question is: the, it can't it can't be us. Uh, it can't be a bunch of forty year olds changing stuff. Um, so maybe maybe uh, we need to be more intentional about allowing millennials to be prophetic mm -hmm. um, and allowing minorities to be prophetic mm -hmm. um, and allowing females to be prophetic in allowing um, people that have questions about faith to be prophetic. Um, and so I think, I think if your answer to the question is yes, we, we need some changes, then the question then becomes what needs to change and who can better guide us through that change. Uh, you, you were talking about language, right, as we started, the language from the past speaking to the present and the future. Um, if we're trying to craft a new future mm. for Adventism, then what voices from the past do we need to hear? Because mm. we don't want to exclude the voices from the past. Mm. And how can we empower those voices here and now to speak about the past in new and exciting ways? Wow. I love that. I love how you brought almost like two groups of, of voices together. You have the voices of the outsiders, which we said throughout the history of God's people, God has often used the outside voice to speak into the mm -hmm. institution. So the voices that are normally not heard, how can we allow them to speak? But also you brought in the importance of the voices of the past, which again, like you said at the beginning, um, that is really what the outside voices are calling them to, calling God's people mm -hmm. to, the prophets are calling God's people to, is that original covenant that original mission, the original purpose for which it was created. And so I think, like, like you said, it's important to be listening to both mm. of those, both the purpose for which Adventism was called out to be, to, to be very clear about that and say, 
that more than just the survival of the institution of Adventism, which is important. And I love the institution mm -hmm. of Adventism. We have both committed our lives to being a part of this. So we love it. But that the, the survival of the mission is more important than the yeah. survival of the institution mm -hmm. and really committing to that. And then committing to that by listening to those outside voices that may be pointing out, there's something wrong here. You are actually drifting away. Kind of reminds me of um, when I first moved into the first home that we we purchased back in uh, many years ago in Alhambra. When I first moved in, I could see everything that was wrong with the house, like the scars here. And I was like, I'm going to fix that. I promised myself I was going to fix it. But you know what happens? You get busy, time passes, and eventually you get used to mm -hmm. it. You don't even see it anymore. You get blind to all of those things, those imperfections that you originally saw. It takes an outside perspective for someone to walk in and my parents walking through and they said, why is, why did, why haven't you painted that? And like, oh, I don't even notice don't it anymore. It. Right. Maybe we need to listen to those outside voices to, to point out those imperfections mm -hmm. within our system that we've gotten so used to because we've been a part of the system for so long. And that's that friends after all is adaptability. Mm -hmm. Joey, could you close us off in prayer? Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for your patience, because as we've seen time and time again, not just in scripture, but in our own lives, we fail to stay true to the covenant that you've given to us, to the mission that you've cast in front of us. And so we ask that you give us, you continue to be patient with us, but you also encourage us to listen to these voices, like Miguel was saying, the voices of the past and the voices of those who have an outside perspective and are better able to see the imperfections in the systems and the institutions that we reside in. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So go and live justly, love mercy, walk humbly, and become adaptable. See you next week. Thank you.